Chapter six and seven of Taken at the Flood by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Six. Mrs. Standon and her son have a few words. It is half past ten o'clock, and the visitors have departed from Dean House after what the two Miss Toynbees declare gushingly to have been a most enjoyable evening. It has borne a close resemblance to other enjoyable evenings at Henningham. There has been a well-ordered dinner but not a banquet of surprises such as heliogabalus or philip of orleans might have prepared for his guests since every one at addingham knows pretty well the strong points of his neighbour's cook and could make a shrewd guess as to the contents of the silver entree dishes before the covers are lifted then the ladies have taken a little stroll in the twilight to admire the bedding-out plants have even visited the hot-houses perhaps at the risk of whitening their festal raiment while the gentlemen edmund standon mr toynbee and mr holmes the curate have talked politics airing respectable conservative opinions over their claret and coffee then they have all met in the big cool drawing-room for tea and a little music and they have simpered their approval of songs and mazurkas which they have heard a good many times since christmas and then they have parted delighted with one another and with a life which can boast such bright spots as these friendly little dinners if there is one time more than any other that seems to lay itself out as it were for a family quarrel that period is the empty half-hour after a dinner-party the guests are gone the society mask worn perhaps unconsciously but worn all the same drops off feelings that have been held in repression during this interval of artificial existence spring back upon us with strong rebound the hatches have been battened down over that dark hold where we keep our emotions but our bad passions thrust them open when society's restraining influence is withdrawn esther rochdale pleaded fatigue and said good-night to her adopted mother as soon as the guests were gone good-night dear auntie she said and i hope you'll go to bed very soon for you're looking pale and tired i'm afraid the sun to-day was too much for you it had been agreed long ago that esther should call her protectress auntie in all things had mrs standon been as a mother to the orphan yet she could not bear that any lips except those of her own children should call her mother edmund's voice alone gave that sacred name its full sweetness fond though she was of her daughter who had married and made for herself new ties and a new home in her heart of hearts edmund was as her only child she would not for the world have owned to such a sentiment setting her face as she did against all sentimentality nevertheless this was the feeling that had governed her years ago when she taught the little indian child to call her auntie the sun was powerful but i don't mind that said mrs standon with an involuntary glance at her son what was it that bored you to-day if it was not the heat mother asked edmund when esther was gone those troublesome emotions would not be kept any longer under hatches the long dull evening enforced severance from sylvia and the prosy conversational meanderings of mr toynbee and the curate had goaded mr stanton almost to madness he felt that it would do him good to quarrel with some one even with his mother there was no tenderness in that sacred name as his lips uttered it to-night i was unhappy about you edmund answered mrs stanton with a look of pain why should you be unhappy about me mother asked the young man coldly i can see no reason i have always been an obedient son you have indeed said the mother stealing a tender look at her darling who was walking up and down the room with impatient strides and i shall be so still or if i cannot obey i shall at least know how to submit 
why should you feel unhappy mother you have made your decision and i am ready to abide by it we can be friends all the same no we are not the same to each other we are not what we were a month ago well there may be a little difference in our mutual satisfaction just at first edmund answered with a somewhat bitter smile it takes a man some time to accustom himself to the idea that his mother means to disinherit him i don't mean as regards the change in his prospects that is a small thing but he has to reconcile himself to the knowledge that the mother he loves can deal hardly by him do you think it is no pain to me to deal hardly with you edmund if it were so painful you would scarcely do it it is for your own sake edmund if my affection has no influence with you i must use the power your father's will gave me i would do anything to prevent this wretched marriage that you will never do you can reduce me to beggary but you cannot rob me of the woman i love nothing less than fate shall do that you mean to marry sylvia carew then asked the mother with a desperate look she could hardly believe that this idolized son could persist in his opposition to her will she had entreated him with tears she would have gone on her knees to supplicate him had there been any hope of success i told you so the day before yesterday he said moodily yes but some good influence might have softened your heart since then there is no hardness in my heart i have only made up my mind to marry the one woman i can thoroughly love is there anything unnatural in a man choosing for himself i think you sometimes forget mother that i have come to man's estate you fancy that i am still a little boy protected from the risk of falling downstairs by a gate on the nursery landing as i used to be twenty years ago i should not attempt to interfere with your choice if it were rational the deliberate result of sober reason an attachment that had stood the test of time but to see you bent upon marrying a girl whom you have only known since last may of whom you know positively nothing except that she has a pretty face and that is the one face upon earth for me and that she loves me and that i love her that's the beginning middle and end of a love-story mother you can't improve it or take away from it or add to it no love-match from the days of paris and helen ever had a longer history one would think you never have been in love yourself mother by your talk of sober reason and rational attachments this careless thrust went home mrs stanton had dreamed her fond girlish dream of true love seven years before she married the portly banker at the sober age of six-and-twenty she had loved and been beloved and sacrificed the tenderest hopes of a girl's heart upon the altar of family convenience should there not be a small stone altar in the hall of every house as a symbol of that invisible shrine on which so many tender feelings are constantly being offered up before the implacable household nemesis necessity mrs standen would not tell edmund how she too had suffered it would have been disrespectful to that generous husband who had loved and trusted her so fully but she went up to her boy and gently took his hand and said i know what it is to suffer edmund and to be disappointed and to own afterwards that the disappointment was a blessing in disguise i want no such equivocal benefits said the young man impatiently there's no use in arguing the point mother i mean to be a dutiful son always nothing can make any real or lasting difference in my affection for you but i intend to marry the woman i love and then after settling the question thus with an air of supreme calm that quarrelsome demon which had been disquieting him more or less all the evening 
broke loose in mr standon's breast and he exclaimed angrily indeed i cannot see what substantial reason you can have for objecting to the match what are we that we should set ourselves up among the old county families on my side at least we have some claim to good blood said mrs standon with dignity the bosonies are as old a family as any in the west of england mrs standon had been a miss bosony that crumbling ivy-mantled vault in the churchyard enshrined the ashes of her ancestors she had inherited the wooster dinner service and the derby dessert service from the bosonies like the copplestones and the trelawneys i suppose replied edmund scornfully but when we come to names carew is as good as any a very good name for those to whom it belongs but i should question a parish schoolmaster's right to it what did you never hear of a gentleman in reduced circumstances rarely of any gentleman living so obscure a life as mr carew's without some good reason for his preferring such obscurity answered mrs standon you are full of prejudice mother cried edmund quickening his pace it is not prejudice edmund but instinct trust a mother's feeling in such a case as this if it is life or death for you it is life or death for me wreck your happiness and you wreck mine i have studied that girl since i found out your infatuation for her a period of three or four weeks cried the son scornfully long enough for me to find out a good deal i have talked to people who know sylvia carew i have been to the school three or four times to see with my own eyes her character is not exposed to view in a glass case like the trinkets on a jeweller's counter she is shallow enough for me to read her yes to the heart of her mystery answered mrs standon frivolous arrogant vain that is the character i hear of her and what i have seen confirms my informants i wonder you can stoop to listen to petty village gossip the ill-natured suggestions of women who are envious of my sylvia's sweet face i have talked to some who are above envy mrs vancourt has seen a good deal of miss carew and her judgment deliberately arrived at for she is far too good a woman to condemn hastily coincides with my own instinct that girl is not worthy of the sacrifice you are going to make for her sacrifice echoed edmund were i emperor i should be proud to win her if it were only a question of worldly disadvantage if it were merely the difference in your social rank i would cease to oppose you said the mother yearning to be reconciled with this beloved son and feeling how wide a breach yawned between them i would even say nothing about the mystery in mr carew's life the evident incongruity between the man and his position if the girl herself were a good girl how dare you say that she is anything less than good cried edmund the long smothered fire flaming out at last how dare you judge her you who pretend to rule your life by the gospel this was another home thrust how is any woman to justify that dim foreboding fear which she calls an instinct i want you to be happy edmund his mother said piteously i can only be happy in my own way i can only be happy if i marry the one woman i love how can you be sure of your heart you are little more than a boy it is all very well for you to think me that mother but at four-and-twenty i claim the right to consider myself a man and you are prepared to face beggary for the sake of this girl i am willing to resign my heritage like esau said mrs stanton bitterly like esau if you will 
things do not go so badly with esau in afterlife he had his flocks and his herds like his more astute brother no mother i don't mean to face beggary i mean to work for my living as many a better man has done before me i mean to succeed god helping me for my young wife's sake and i with a sudden change to tenderness i look forward hopefully to the day when you will be reconciled to my choice and when you will say to me after all edmund a true heart is a safe counsellor that look of affection from the young man's honest eyes that tender tone deeply touched the mother she was not usually demonstrative of her softer feelings but to-night she laid her head on her son's shoulder and sobbed aloud my boy she cried i seem to use you hardly when i love you better than my life why you foolish mother said edmund cheerily every angry feeling gone at sight of his mother's tears do you think anything or anybody can alter the affection we two bear for each other do you think a paltry question of money would ever divide us do you think i love you any less because i persist in my choice of a wife a man's heart must be small indeed if it is not big enough to hold wife and mother my best of sons murmured mrs standon he who rules above us reads my heart and knows it holds no selfish feeling where you are concerned it is no personal prejudice no mother's jealousy that makes me oppose this marriage but you have made up your mind why do i speak of it any more let there be no bitterness between us i can do no more except pray for your happiness mrs standon had played her ace of trumps and as it were thrown the card away she had thought that when called upon to weigh the loss of his father's fortune against the gratification of his own caprice edmund would have hesitated to pay so heavy a price for his fancy she saw him calmly resolute unmoved by the prospect of so great a sacrifice ready to surrender his heritage as lightly as if it had been one of the banker's silver snuff-boxes those memorials of the departed which were piously preserved under a glass case on the chiffonier yonder she saw her tactics fail utterly she had never meant to rob her boy of the inheritance that was justly his she had never meant to enrich her daughter at the cost of her son she had only striven to stand between edmund and a passion which that keen instinct of maternal love told her would be fatal seven der mensch denkt after that little talk with his mother which had begun in bitterness and ended in mutual pardon edmund standen felt more at peace with himself than he had felt for some time at least he and his mother fully understood each other and edmund felt that in taking his own road he need not turn his back upon that dearly loved mother it pleased him to think that he might begin his new life perhaps at monkhampton within a few miles of deanhouse and be able to see his mother as often as he liked she should not feel herself deserted he would take good care of that every action of his life should help to prove to her that even while following the bent of his own inclination he was not the less her true son he was in no hurry to go to bed though it was midnight when he parted from mrs standen at the door of her room a desperately late hour for dean house the moon shone full upon the three tall narrow windows of his bedchamber he drew up the blinds and admitted that flood of tender light and he paced this room as he had paced the room below thoughtfully but no longer with angry thoughts yes he would reconcile duty to his mother with this new love the old tie should not be broken because the new bond was strong 
and by and by when mrs standen became resigned to the inevitable she would surely be kind to sylvia she would erect no barrier between the two homes she would not exclude her son's wife from his father's house time wears away all rough edges he said to himself those two will grow fond of each other at last and if god blesses us with children by and by that link will unite us all no i do not fear the future and as for poverty edmund standen who had never known the want of a five-pound note dismissed the thought with a careless laugh and left the sentence unfinished he had the plan of his future laid down as neatly as if it had been an architect's specification of a villa of course the bank would give him a situation and a salary of say two hundred and fifty pounds a year to start with he and sylvia could manage delightfully on two hundred and fifty they would choose the dearest little house half cottage half villa on the outskirts of the town on broomfield hill for instance a rustic road from which one looked across intervening wood and meadow to the wide estuary of the wex just where it melted into the sea they would live very quietly with that modest elegance which edmund who knew nothing about housekeeping fancied compatible with a yearly income of two hundred and fifty pounds they would have little company for what society so delightful as their own they would live only for each other and spend all their money on themselves edmund had the nucleus of a good library books collected by himself and paid for with his own pocket-money he could still pursue the delightful task of collecting his income would allow margin for that and how sweet would be their evenings when his day's toil was over summer evenings in the little garden brimming over with sweet-scented flowers and with at least one good old tree for shade a garden on the slope of that steep hill from which they could watch the sun's golden cup drop down into the cool blue wave winter evenings when they closed their shutters upon all the outside world and sat by their cheerful hearth and talked of all things in heaven and earth while the low minor strain of that ever murmuring sea sounded faintly in the pauses of their talk how sweet it would be to read aloud while his young wife worked she must be fond of work of course all tender home-loving women are he could fancy the fair young face bent with a busy look above the capacious work-basket emblem of matronhood he could fancy the bright young mind expanding under his teaching naturally at four-and-twenty he thought himself wise enough to teach that desultory education for the most part self-teaching which had served to make sylvia seem clever would now be succeeded by the man's thoughtful and logical process he would shape his wife's mind write the wisdom of departed sages the dreams of mighty poets on that fair tablet make her in very truth his companion his second self fair vision he looked out at the moonlit garden where the smooth lawn reflected the shadows of the trees like the still bosom of a lake he looked dreamily out upon this tranquil old world picture his heart throbbing fast with the fullness of his joy and thought of a home which should be better than this for it would be shared with sylvia i'll ride into monkhampton directly after breakfast to-morrow and see the principal at the bank he said to himself and i'll call upon mr carew in the evening all lies clear before me now and every one in headingham shall know that i am going to marry sylvia carew and thus supremely satisfied with his prospects mr standen went to bed i wonder by the way if esther rochdale knows anything about my engagement he thought as he dropped to sleep 
the world looked very fair to edmund standon next morning when he went down to join in those household prayers which prefaced the eight o'clock breakfast at dean house the panelled parlour where the dark oak panelling had been painted white by some cheerful-minded goth had a bright fresh look in the morning sunshine the carefully appointed table with its spotless damask central bowl of flowers and old-fashioned silver urn invited appetite the sideboard with its corps de reserve of ham and sirloin supported the picture windows open to the ground made the flower garden almost a part of the room birds were singing their morning hymns of salutation to the sunshine and the earth a veil of summer mist still floated above the dewy grass esther rochdale was alone in the room when edmund entered it she was standing in one of the open windows looking thoughtfully at the garden with that fixed look which sees nothing lost in a reverie that seemed pensive but she greeted edmund with a cordial smile nevertheless as they shook hands before his german exile they had kissed each other at morning and evening but when he came home from the grand tour mr stanton found no kiss on his adopted sister's lips though her welcome was of the tenderest and he felt somehow that the days of those boy and girl salutations were over she was his junior by five years and looked younger than she was so delicately slender was the figure so youthful the small features and innocent expression of the pale oval face it was a face whose distinctive charm was sweetness placid pensive even to melancholy at times in miss rochdale the stranger would never discover the young lady of independent means indeed so gentle was her manner so unselfish her every thought that she had often been mistaken for the meek object of mrs standon's bounty so good of mrs standon to keep that poor little thing miss rochdale people had said surprised when they heard that the poor little thing possessed an inalienable income of six hundred a year yet it must not be supposed that miss rochdale was one of those timid and insipid young persons who cannot say bow to the various geese of their acquaintance beneath that calm and gentle exterior there beat a heart capable of heroic deeds that ample forehead indicated a mind that could think high thoughts esther rochdale had formed her own opinion of men and books even at nineteen years of age she had read and thought a great deal in the tranquil life at dean house which gave so much leisure for study as well as for all manner of unselfish acts miss rochdale was mr vancourt's most valued assistant among the poor and did more work than his three daughters got through among them yet people hardly ever heard her name in dorcas clubs or saw it figure in a subscription list what her right hand gave from her ample income was hardly known to her left hand how bright you look this morning edmund she said while they stood at the window waiting for mrs standon and the bell which assembled the orderly household every morning as the clock struck eight the hall clock had never finished striking before the shrill clang of the bell began that cloudy look has gone which i've noticed so often lately my dear girl answered edmund cheerfully a secret is just one of those things that my mental constitution cannot stand i've been suffering lately from the oppression of a secret you edmund cried esther with an incredulous look why i thought no secret ever crossed the threshold of dean house don't the very housemaids tell auntie or me everything that happens to them but your secret what secret can you have from your mother above all people it has not been a secret from my mother for the last three days i told her all about it on tuesday was that what made her so unhappy she was crying in her own room the day before yesterday and even yesterday before she dressed to go out 
i saw the traces of tears both times oh edmund what could you have done to make her so unhappy was it anything in germany if it was any trouble about money you ought to know that my resources are at your disposal she had a dim idea that germany was populated by gamblers that edmund might have become the prey of those harpies you dear innocent esther cried edmund touched by her goodness it is nothing about money matters and if it were do you think i would be so mean a hound as to trade upon your benevolence my secret related to a subject much nearer to my heart than worldly wealth for you know i hold that lightly added the young man with a lofty air but how could you be so unkind as to make auntie unhappy she chose to make herself so esther that was no work of mine but my mother and i are both contented now the little cloud has blown away for ever and i think she begins to understand that there is one crisis in a man's life in which he must be his own master the girl looked up at him wonderingly or with something more than mere wonder a blank strange look what is that crisis edmund she asked quietly that strange look passing swiftly as a flicker of the sunlight across the flower-beds when he finds himself for the first time in his life honestly deeply lastingly in love there was a little pause just about the duration of an electric shock in that moment esther's cheek paled ever so slightly her lips moved faintly a look of pain came into the dark earnest eyes but that look was very brief and lovers are egotistical edmund saw nothing till those sweet lips gave him a friendly smile while the two little hands were raised to his arm and rested there with gentle affection anything that makes you happy must make me glad edmund she said tenderly but i hope this love is a wise one yet if it were it would hardly make your mother unhappy oh my mother has her own scheme for my existence i have no doubt and would like me to have fallen in love to order as it were a look of pain much keener than the last came into esther's face but she was looking downward and edmund was not watching her closely he was thinking of his own wrongs there was forgiveness between him and his mother but the sense of soreness still lingered the wound was in process of healing but not healed as to the wisdom of my choice he said presently that's a jargon of outsiders which never yet applied to true love a man is not wise in these matters he obeys his destiny without stopping to consider whether the woman he loves has money and consuls or connections whose influence may assist his career he loves because he loves i don't suppose the headingham gentry with their narrow notions and petty maxims will altogether approve my choice but i have chosen where my heart told me to choose and i care not a doit for the opinion of the wiseacres who may call me a fool nor for your mother's opinion edmund said esther yet i should have thought there could be no event in your life in which that would not influence you haven't i told you that in affairs of the heart a man must judge for himself pshaw child what do you know about it wait till you are over head and ears in love with some young gentleman from oxford or sandhurst and then see how much auntie's grave advice will weigh against the fascinations of your admirer you mustn't take the side of worldly wisdom esther i have counted on your influence to soften my mother's heart towards sylvia sylvia exclaimed esther with a look of horror sylvia carew i know of no other sylvia in this part of the country answered edmund coolly 
the name is uncommon you care for sylvia carew the schoolmaster's pretty daughter and my future wife said edmund with dignity i hope you have nothing to say against her oh edmund how could you ever make such a fatal choice fatal you and my mother will drive me distracted between you fatal at the mention of sylvia's name you both go into heroics and sigh and open your eyes wide and talk about fatality just as if i were a member of the house of laius and doomed to break the canonical table of affinities in plain words esther what have you to say against miss carew not much certainly said esther with her accustomed placidity i have thought her vain and ill-tempered but that may have been my mistake vain well i dare say she knows she is the prettiest woman in headingham ill-tempered there i know you are mistaken he thought of sylvia's sweet smile the upward look of those melting hazel eyes ill-tempered with such eyes and such a smile how these women slander one another perhaps i have judged her too hastily edmund yet i hardly think i can have been wrong replied esther meekly i have seen her slap the poor little children seen her slap the poor little children echoed edmund scornfully if you had as much of the poor little children as sylvia has i don't suppose you'd refrain from an occasional tap you go into the schoolhouse once or twice a week in your dilettante fashion just when the humour takes you and then you set yourself up as a judge and pronounce sentence upon sylvia who has to endure the plague of those brats every day of her life esther did not remind him that she did her work in the sunday school regularly and walked from deanhouse to headingham to do it in rain or sunshine from year's end to year's end whether the humour did or did not seize her that she disregarded headache and neuralgia and all the pains to which humanity is subject when duty called she only answered him with a hardly audible sigh. End of chapter six and seven.